that. Hey, dreamers, welcome to the Dream Stream podcast. I am your host, Yiska Cook, here today with fellow dream worker and friend, Brendan Merritt. How are you doing, Brendan? Doing okay. Um, Dream life has been very much more active since last time we have spoken. That's what you had written, and I think that's wonderful. So you're dreaming again, remembering your dreams, and uh, recording them, I assume, or writing them down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> somebody needs to crack the whip there. Okay. <laughs> So. <laughs> so I want to talk about lucid dreaming today because I'm fascinated by the topic and coming home from Thanksgiving dinner, my 11 year old said, oh, when you lucid dream, you don't choose everything. You just are put in the position to make decisions and, and then you make those decisions. And then my 24-year-old chimed in and he said, yes, exactly. And I was like, wow, my boys know about lucid dreaming, which is not that much of a surprise. I mean, they know I'm into dreams. I've always been since before they came <laughs> into this world. But um, my, my um, 24-year-old said, he was like, yeah, that's how I experience it. And exactly how they described it is how I experience it. So my 24-year-old said, it's less that you make all the decisions, rather you're presented with situations and lucidly make the decisions. So, and I very much experience it similarly, that I'm not choosing the setting. I mean, there's still, what did Dr. Stephen Larson always say, the, the dream conductor or whatever is still making the decisions, but I find myself in the middle of it, um, choosing, choosing the situation to find myself in. So I'd love to share a lucid dream that I can kind of point, point this out. That'd be great. So there is a wonderful Buddhist teacher from the Bon tradition uh, named Bon, B-O-N, named Tenzin Weingel Rinpoche. And he's an author and he wrote, and a teacher, and he wrote a book called The Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep. And I went to see him talk twice. um, The first time at the Open Center in the city and the second time at Omega in Rhinebeck. And he's, he's so lovely. So he was telling his uh, students, us, the participants, about what we can choose to do when we lucid dream. So he was saying, you can change gender, you know, and he was saying, you can be an animal. And he had, he just had different suggestions. And uh, the last night of the workshop, I had the most exquisite lucid dream, but then nobody was still around to share it with, oh. least of all the teacher. It was the end of the of the workshop, so I I had to kind of hold it close, <laughs> so I, I didn't have anyone to share it with from that setting. So here's my dream. I used to live on County Route Two, 
in Accord, New York, Mid Hudson Valley. And I had a dream that I am driving down the road. It's a very windy road. I'm driving down the road and I smash into a car on the side of the road. And I'm like, oh my gosh. But I didn't, it was like a hit and run. I didn't, huh. I didn't do anything about it. I was like, uh-oh. And then I'm driving further. And again, I collide with a parked car. And the next thing I know, there's a police car behind me with their sirens on. And I say to myself, man, this better be a dream because if not, I'm in big trouble. And if it is, <laughs> if it is a dream, I'm getting out of here, you know, and that popped me right into lucidity. So the first thing I did was I flew, I was in the car, I flew myself in the car um, onto a big, I flew, I had to get out of there. You know, my car flew. Okay, that's pretty cool. <laughs> the fuzz was after me. <laughs> so I, I landed at a farm. It almost looked like that farm, the big red barn when you go up Mohonk to come down into New Paltz. You know, there's a big red barn. Anyway, maybe you'll notice this is almost like that. And, um, and then I got out of the car and I said, I will need my horse. And then the next thing I know, a beautiful Palomino, my dream horse, uh, comes out from behind the barn and I get on it. And then things were kind of funny with my gender. I, you know, first I was a woman, I was myself. And I, when I flew in the car to the farm, but I think when I get on the horse, then I become a man and I have a big lance under my arm. And the next thing I know, I'm in a village along a, a big lake. And there's all these different cottages where people live. And somehow I know that, that they have to, there's a dragon that lives there and they have to sacrifice a virgin, a maiden to the dragon regularly. And everybody's very upset about this. So um, the next thing I know, I'm like down, looking at, down at the village. The next thing I know, there's a big dragon coming out of the lake. So it has a little bit of the Nessie, <laughs> Loch Ness monster. And the big dragon is coming out of the lake and just its head. And I'm on my horse, on my steed, and I have my lance. And the first thing I say is, oh no, what if I'm not strong enough, you know, to kill it? And then, excuse me, and then I think, um, well, I really don't want to hurt anything, you know? <laughs> and the even next thing, what's that? Not even a dragon. Just in that one moment. <laughs> and then, and then uh, the next thing I say is, I'm going for it. And my horse starts galloping towards the lake's edge. And I have my lance and I go forward with the lance and I hit the dragon right in the third eye and it collapses and it dies. And then all the people, all the townspeople start pouring out of their, of their homes. Um, very thrilled that I've done this. They don't want to sacrifice any more of their daughters. 
And, um, and so I think I said, at this point, I'm a man. And so then they're going to give me the maiden who is going to be sacrificed. She can now be my wife, you know? And in that moment, I popped back into being a woman and I'm like, wait a minute, you know? And I, and I say, I am the hero, you know, I'll take the prize. And then I come back into my male self and they, you know, and they hand me this beautiful maiden. And um, so I was thinking my two sons, how they explained lucid dreaming is very much how I experienced it. I didn't, I didn't choose the setting or I didn't consciously choose the setting. It's obviously somewhere in my unconscious. And, um, but I made the decisions within the situations I was presented with. So I made the decision to go after the dragon. And I, and I made the decision for my dream horse to come to me. And I made the decision prior to that of flying my car out of there. So even though I didn't consciously again, I'm sure it was in my unconscious mind, I didn't choose to bang into cars and a cop would be following me and I would, you know, I didn't choose any of that or even the village on the lake. And it looked like a little European village, like stone houses, like cottages, everybody lived in a cottage. And, um, and so, and again, I say, I am the hero, I will take the prize. And I, then I went back into being a man. So, and that was the dream that I dreamed at the end of my workshop with Tenzin Wango Rinpoche. And I wasn't able to share it with any of the people I was learning with. So, um, but it was so super exciting. And I think we've spoken about, Brendan, how lucid dreams are very elusive, you know? Yeah, that's the one thing that I find really compelling about them is that the clarity of them. Yes. And like, I often dream in color and I've heard that some people never dream in color. So wow. that in of itself isn't enough of a like uh, indication for me. It, it more has to do with it's almost hyper real. Like it's oh. just real, but there's like an uh, almost like pumped up uh, version of reality like everything yes. has like an inner luminescence almost yeah I see what you mean definitely yeah and I believe our dream teacher Robert Moss had said when you dream in black and white it's almost like a documentary film so it could be telling us something from the past or something from the future but when we dream in color it's it's more like life. Yeah. So I guess black and white is more like day residue kind of dream. Oh, possibly. Yeah. Right. And so, and it's, you know, it's, it's more like news oriented or something. I don't know, but Brendan, will you share a lucid dream with us? I wanted to comment on your dream a little first. Oh, because, thank you. Uh, there were just a few things that popped in my head. The one thing is, you know, kind of on the humorous side, have you ever seen uh, Mel Brooks's film, The History of the World? I'm sure I did. I love Mel Brooks. 
there's this running joke in the film and I think they end it like this, but there is this horse named Miracle. It's like this oh, yes. bright white stallion. Yes. And they're like in a real pickle at some point in the movie <laughs> when surrounded by Roman guards or whatever. Right. And they're like, we're going to need a miracle if we're going to get out of this. And, ah. like, and the horse whinnies and oh. the camera turns and there's Miracle. And they're like, Miracle. Like, I love it. I love it. Just reminded me of that. Um, I, I remember. We are the Knights of Ni. Is that also oh, a history that's, of the- that's a totally different film? That's but it's also uh, Mel Brooks, Monty yeah. Python. Nope. No, Monty it's Monty Python. Python. Yes. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, the Knights of Ni are in uh, the Holy Grail. Okay. <laughs> but um, getting back to you know just the whole. I mean, you've got a couple of things that are interesting to me going on there. It's almost like. Well, Dr. Freud and Dr. Young, we were expecting you. <laughs> yes. Um, because you've got like this whole archetypal like thing happening um, between the car and the horse. They're both modes of transportation. Yes. Um, and some people might say that they're typically representative of masculine traits. Um, and it's interesting that when you're on the horse, you become a male knight carrying yes. a lance. Yes. You know, how epiphallic can you get? I know. <laughs> epiphallic, like is that what you said? Huh? E- epiphallic. Iptophallic. Ep- epic and phallic. Iptophallic. It's, it's a word denoting something that's uh, symbolic of a phallus. There's a couple of Roman deities that are always okay. created with with erect phalluses and they refer to them as iptophallic okay. um, deities um, when you know pan is often and yes. sylvanus are both often represented that way um but there's gods in even in um egyptian mythology that are like that yes <laughs> but um huh. the other thing that i flashed on there's a movie called dragon slayer that was a really beautiful film and there's almost a reversal there because in that movie there is a um young hero who's a a wizard's apprentice he's not a knight but um when he's on his way to the village there is a young page with them who it's revealed is actually a woman um disguised as a boy is trying to preserve her from being sacrifice to the dragon okay Um, it's it's very it's very mythic scene yeah you know the um the sexual elements are kind of interesting though too because like typically um i think uh carl jung and um joseph campbell both equate the dragon or the serpentine forms with feminine energy, okay interesting like platonic underworld forces that yes. are kind of like devouring and you know yes women um, women are fierce <laughs> well aspects of women are fierce yeah. I, I mean it's not well, i should say the feminine not, not women but the feminine but yeah aspects of the feminine lilith is a good representation yes absolutely judaism um and the lake itself yeah in mythology, dragons are almost always associated with bodies of water. Really? 
is also, oh yeah, they, they're, if you read um, just the book, The Flight of the Dragons, which is kind of whimsical in some ways, but he goes into the history of the mythology around dragons and they're often referred to as lake monsters. Really? Um, oh, I did not know that. The uh, worm. I thought of, I was crossing mythological um, animals like Loch Ness monster who is yeah, in the water no. with the dragon who I would think would be in the sky. Um, trying to remember the name of it, but um, they touch on the story in, 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 uh, in the movie Lair of the White Worm that was written by Bram Stoker. Huh. Um, there's a worm, aka a dragon, that oh. starts out being a funny old fish that somebody accidentally catches on their hook. And they're like, oh, what is this thing? And they throw it into the well. Oh. And it just gets bigger and bigger, starts you know, eating frogs or whatever, and eventually gets big enough to come out and start eating lambs and villagers. Okay. And the giant comes and gets him or her or whatever it is. Right. Um, right. Grendel's yes. is another feminine, you know, water monster who is the mother of a strange monster but there's also confusion about whether or not she might be a dragon herself ah. um, so there's really it's convoluted when you get into it yes so you have like this chthonic feminine force being confronted by an iptophallic almost solar male form um, yes coming being after. the knight with the with the lance yeah, yes. and you get presented with the virgin, you know, as yes, prize, you know, yes. And what's the interesting part is that you're fe actually female, and you you know reveal that at some yes. point by returning to your normal form. Was that right. a conscious choice you made in the dream to I, turn I, back into? No, a female? that was not a conscious choice. All of a sudden, I was back as a female, and I was like, no, no, no. I am the hero. And in my dream, that was the male. And I will take the prize <laughs> because, you know, so then I switched back to a male and I took the, the lovely maiden. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really know what uh, some of the implications are behind that kind of a dream, but it's, interesting to me from like just a historical viewpoint that it seems to almost be like the classic battle between like the solar male deity and the yes. like underworld you know dragon water creature yes tiamat is also even you know the when the oldest story that we have as a written story um is kind of considered a water monster as well Huh. referred to as a dragon yes um, some interpretations and you know that's babylon and sumeria so okay that's, that's incredibly old um and fascinating in a lot yes. of ways well and i think michael the the story goes i used to be a waldorf teacher so michael just holds the dragon at bay but King, uh, George, King George, or 
Oh, no. Yeah, St. George. St. George actually... Talking about an English version of the story. Actually kills the dragon. Yeah, there's... Not Mikhail. of Archangel Michael holding um, the dragon at bay. And that's... Yes. That's when they started more demonizing the symbol of the dragon and made it into a symbol of the devil. At some point in Christianity, they, you know explicitly identified the dragon as somehow equated it with the devil specifically wow um and i don't you know i'm kind of curious i gotta actually at some point go back and find the story of saint george because yes saint george prior to being a saint you know i'm not sure whether or not there was a dragon in the original story or not or whether that, that got layered into it but there are lots of really interesting stories dotted around england in particular of knights confronting dragons like the one i was talking about with the worm yes Um, tolkien did a really funny short smog smog the dragon well even outside of that he wrote a short story (laughs) called the smith of wooten major um, which is about a young smith uh, blacksmith who ends up going to become a dragon slayer. And it's it's wow. very whimsical, the whole thing, but it's a spinoff on those kind of stories. It's yes. definitely read if you can find it. Yeah, I would love to read more on this. It's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that you brought up dragons at all today because I was having a conversation online um, with a good friend of mine who was just talking about the symbol of Medusa Yes, um, but which, that's who's behind you. Yeah, yeah, Medusa. Is, it, is that Medusa? It's yeah, I think it is actually. With, with well, yeah, with Perseus, like he's on her head, on of her, something like that. Yeah, but I don't remember where this painting is from. I've had this background for a while. Yes, um, but she was basically, you know, talking about alternative interpretations of the myth. Um, and again, it's another kind of classic male versus female story because the story around Medusa is that she gets raped by Poseidon. Okay. And then, you know, because she tries to distance herself from the whole situation, yes. Athena decides to punish her and turn oh. her into this creature with serpents for hair. Wow. Turns people to stone. Wow. Um, interesting yeah. and some version yeah. of the story she's got a serpentine body as well wow okay yeah fascinating yeah poseidon is a water deity though too so there we okay. are water um and you know in the Jungian world the water tends to represent the unconscious mind yes or, or, or also the emotional the emotional depths and, you know, can also represent the underworld. Yes. You know, which in fairy mythology around Britain, um, lakes and bodies of water are sometimes gateways to the other world or, you know, it's seen uh, as like fairyland is- it's the lady of the lake. Water. Yep. She rises out of the lake. Out of with, the lake. With a sword. Is that the same sword that King Arthur is able to- pull out of the stone 
it's supposed to be a different sword because um, yeah. the stories are told separately from one another. Um, okay. There's even some versions of the story where Arthur's sister, Morgan Le Fay, yes, um, makes him a garter or a belt for the sword. And the scabbard okay. is what oh, yes. prevents him from being harmed. Okay. It actually protects him from any wounds. And there are even versions of the story where that scabbard or that belt or garter is given to Gawain yes. when he goes to confront the Green Knight. Oh, yes. And the wow. whole thing about you know, that is that he has to reveal the secret of it and give it up in order to really face the challenge. In other words, face death. Because right. without that, he's vulnerable and can be killed. Wow. Well, I was just thinking of Gawain and the story of um, the the woman who also looks like a witch, he has to marry her. And then in the night when they're about to consummate or that's you know going to be happening, she turns into a beautiful princess and she gives him the choice. I can either be a beautiful princess at night or during the day so all your friends can see that I'm beautiful. And then at night I would be more witchy. And he says to her, I, I can't make that choice for you. You need to make that choice. And because that was his response, um, she becomes a beautiful queen or princess, both in the day and in the night. So right. I guess because he gives her the autonomy to make the choice herself. Yeah, it's it's definitely a it's a resolution of opposites, and that story is even older than the version that has Gawain in it because it's oh, originally really? a Celtic tale of three brothers, oh. and the first two brothers fail the test. Um, the third one, who is considered you know kind of young simpleton or whatever, kind-hearted, he passes a couple of other challenges before he meets the hag, and. Um, okay. He, you know, basically is given the choice of, well, you can have me as a hag or you can have me as a beautiful woman. And yes. Which one will it be? And he makes the right choice by giving yes. her her own sovereignty. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Oh, I love that. But well, thank you. To, thank you, Dreamworker. <laughs> yeah, back, back to the whole lucid dreaming bit, though. It's interesting that you guys all agree, and I agree, too, that generally when I've had a lucid dream, I'm presented with a situation. Yes. Like, and then at some point there's like a shift and my consciousness and I'm like, oh, wait, this yes. is a dream. I have some choices here yes. on how to play this out. Exactly. And it's never been like a full-blown, I'm going to enter into a dream and do this. Right. So like you're teleported to whatever spot, yes. you know, or situation and suddenly something clicks and you're like oh wait this is a lucid dream this cannot possibly be happening <laughs> yeah and can't really like control everything in the environment right but you have more control than you would in a dream where you're just the viewer and i think that that's interesting what you were saying earlier about like color versus black and white and yes 
contrasting that even with the hyper reality of a lucid dream um, takes it one layer deeper because suddenly mm. you have possibilities. You're not a passive viewer like you are in the black and white dream. Right. It's very true. And you're true. not, you know, just having an experiential thing going on as you would in a normal color dream, but you have choices. Yes. And how do I deal with this? And you can even say to yourself at some points, and I've done this since our dreams, is this is a dream. I don't want to, you know, I need to do stuff today. I need to wake <laughs> up and suck yourself out of it. And, yes. Yes. You know, I can do like a normal waking consciousness. Yes. But yeah, um, share, let me think about what I would want to share. Okay. Um, there's one dream that keeps coming back to me. Um, that was one I brought up, I think, during one of um, Dr. Larson's dream groups years ago. That was definitely a lucid dream. Um, hmm. Me, Where, again, I was suddenly in some kind of fairyland. Okay. Uh, medieval you know, classic fairy tale kind of scenario. Yes. And I think, I don't even remember who it is, but I'm presented with this quest yes. and I'm given a sword and I'm said that I need to go find the true fairy cross. Um, hmm. In reality, fairy crosses are these little stones that you, that they naturally form crystals that are shaped in a cross form um but this was the true fairy cross whatever okay that. and yeah so there were some interesting elements of that one where i could actively like engage almost like a choose your own adventure exactly exactly do you know those books those books oh, helped yeah. me so much as a kid you know i was reading those and i i was so fascinated i felt like i was learning all about free choice and destiny or whatever. And I got to the point where I, you know, make my choices and turn to the page number. I got to the point where I had to know what happens with every choice. So I, I went back again and I would look if I went the other way and I needed to unpack that whole scenario. Yeah, I think role-playing games are really great for that. Um, sort of thing that was kind of how I got to choose your own adventure books okay the back door of Dungeons and Dragons okay because they started making choose your own adventure Dungeons and Dragons books oh uh, after the game got popular yes and you know it was a way that you could have some interactivity going on and they eventually brought that into the computer world um, with there were games like Myst. Okay. You had like choices or you had to answer questions. Um, yes. You know, you're going through this quasi mythological, like weird astral, I don't know, etheric world that's definitely not our world. Yes. Process. But how, yes. how the story played out was entirely based on what choices you made. Yes. That, that is so much like lucid dreaming. That's incredibly like lucid dreaming you know I was I was sort of knocked off my feet I mean I was sitting in the car but when I heard my my younger boy and my older son 
totally agreeing and they both knew and I was like that is exactly how I see it as well you know and kind of blew me away that's why I very much wanted to visit this topic in a dream stream podcast yeah I'd, I'd really be curious to talk to somebody who was very into Carlos Castaneda's work because yes. he's an author who has been very influential in bringing the idea of lucid dreaming into mainstream Western consciousness. Right. I believe that, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the shaman in the- Don Juan. Don Juan, that's right. I think he instructs instructs Carlos that in order to enter into a dream like that, you need to make a conscious choice and look at your hands. Exactly. Exactly. Look at that your hands. Was the trigger, um, which makes perfect sense when you think about, you know, what do we use to manipulate the world around us? Your okay. Hand. Yes. Yes. And the hand is almost like a little macrocosm because, you know, you think of the five points of the hand. Yes. Being like, you know, he, that famous painting by Da Vinci. Yes. The, almost like a star. Yeah. You know, pentacle. Yes where you know the, the head and the arms and the legs form yes right wow i i love it as above, so below <laughs> as above so below i love that so yeah i never was able to go into lucidity by looking at my hands but i know about that because i read some castanata but um that hasn't been uh, a thing that worked for me but maybe i mean i'm always open <laughs> Yeah, I've tried it, I think. And I think I've had marked limited success, but I haven't been doing it recently. I've got a couple of, a a book on lucid dreaming. I'll have to dig out and share the author with you so you can also share it with viewers. It was like sort of a how-to guide. Okay. uh, With examples from, I guess, different people who have been subjected to, you know, interviews or whatever about the process. Yes. I'd be very interested. There's a, there's another lucid dreaming book that I have. And unfortunately, I also can't think of the author. But he has a lot of world's art of different paintings where he, you know, the woman who's lying down and dreaming, I think there's a lion around her. Like there's that this is something that many cultures practiced over the lying around, huh? Yes. <laughs> so I'll, yeah, I'll so I mean, it, yeah. like a lot of character it's interesting that you attended a class on dreaming with someone from the bond tradition yes. because bond tradition you know is connected to tibetan buddhism but it has its roots in you know what anthropologists refer to as shamanic practices really people are very very yeah extremely shamanic um, yes. Very much into achieving trance states and dream work and Wonderful. You know, a lot of the you know mythological beasties that show up in Tibetan yes. Buddhism have their roots in Bon shamanism. Really yeah. interesting. So interesting. That's so, one of the yeah. things that differentiates that form of Buddhism from you know the Mahayana greater path. Okay. Uh, it's considered the Hinayana meaning it's a lesser path, you know, okay. lesser to whom I don't know, but I mean, because maybe because it's not 
focus so much on achieving salvation through the Buddha as much okay. as it is like you kind of got to work your own way through it by going through all these trials. Yes. You know. Interesting. Yeah. You know, the first the first time I met Tenzin Wangle Rinpoche, as I said, it was at the Open Center in New York City. And um, I had just dreamed, you know, prior to this workshop that I was sitting at around, I am sitting at a round table and I don't know, I think it's already on the table. I don't think somebody brings it, but sitting on the table is a plate with different stones on it. Mm -hmm. And I pick up the turquoise one and I bite into it and I eat it and I still remember its taste. I mean, it was like, it wasn't the best tasting <laughs> as a stone. It wasn't the best tasting <laughs> turquoise. But so you after this. You stuck your finger in the bottom of it like people do with the chocolates. And... Oh, it's taste all of them. <laughs> so um, I know. <laughs> yeah, it had, it had a filling. Yeah, it was like the chocolates. Really? Okay. <laughs> and so I went to um, the first time I met Wango Rinpoche. And I, um, and I had such a turquoise stone, the one that I was in my dream. And I, and I went up to meet him and I presented it to him because I felt like it was just prior to me doing this um, adventure with Tenzin Wangle Rinpoche and then the lucid dreaming felt very significant. So I, I went to give it to him and he was so humble. And he said, no, don't give it to me. You keep this. And he said, he said, but I will bless it. And so he took it in his hands and he put a blessing on it. And then he handed it back to me. That's lovely. Oh, so awesome. Do you still have the stone? I, you know, I might, I might, I think I do, but I'm not sure that I do. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be okay. interesting to see if you could use that as a trigger. Oh, for a what a good time. idea. Okay. I'll put it under my pillow. Yeah. Give, yeah. give it or, a go. Or consciously try to bring it into mind when you're entering that liminal state between yes. dreaming. I'm always so busy with my prayer practice in that liminal space that I think I shared with you that um, I built I'm a prayer cathedral in my oh, imagination right. yep. and um, different things. I'm constantly building it. I'm constantly building this and different things are, are changing such as when I start, I sort of am in Colorado dry wildflower field, a field of all wildflowers. And it's, it smells like pine, you know, it's like so dry there. And, um, and I did what you, think you were suggesting put my feet in the water of the stream right that was from you yeah. and also listening you know to the stream and um yeah so it keeps changing and evolving constantly building so i mean but sometimes i'm awake enough to um do my whole meditation and then still not asleep so maybe that would be the time to incubate to incubate a dream yeah which is to say to ask for right the lucid dream i like making bed you have to let it rise before you can 
right. it, put it in the oven again. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. I guess you could liken it to an alchemical process in that regard. Yes. Yes. So I have one other that came to mind. I think I've had more than two. I mean, again, it's elusive and I'm not practiced in incurring lucid dreams. But my other one, I was still living in my little farmhouse in Accord at the time with these little windows in my bedroom. And there was wonderful maple trees outside my bedroom. And they were separated from each other, but then their branches were touching each other. So I always felt like, you know, there was some magic there. And um, when they did that? Possibly. I'm not sure. And um, like on a windy day, maybe. So um, I dreamed that I was sitting in my bed on my the inside of my window. And I think it was Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi. So he is one of the Rebbe's. He's now deceased um, of Jewish renewal, that, um, you know, mystical Judaism. And I think, so I think he was sitting in the tree outside my window. And I was like, okay, well, that's weird enough to know I'm dreaming. <laughs> and then I go the out. Rebbe in the tree, yeah. <laughs> Rebbe in the tree. <laughs> and, I, and I go through my window and I decided to fly because that's, to me, that's like the most, that's the pinnacle of things in my physical body that I could think to do. And so then I decided I would fly. And I've had other flying dreams too that I do believe were lucid. And, and what happens when I'm flying and do I want to land here or not? So I, I, again, making many decisions about my situation. Yeah, I think the flying thing is definitely often one of the things that people try first when they're dreaming yes. and when they realize they're dreaming. It's like, oh, wow, wait, I can control this. I'm going to fly. Exactly. You know, exactly. It's a great dream of humanity to be able to fly like a bird. But yes. uh, to touch on that dream, the funny thing that popped into my head, um, do you remember the series? The hell was that show with the... That was, it took place in Alaska. Oh. What is it called? Um, Northern Exposure? Yes. Yep. And there's the character who's native. And yes, um, the woman. No, no, the boy, the young man. Oh, okay. Who at some point he randomly starts waking up, finding himself in trees. Really? Like out of the blue, like all of a sudden it starts happening where he's like, you know, goes to bed normally and he wakes up and he's like up in a tree. Wow. What am I doing in the tree? And how and, did I get here? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's actually, I think he is like in a coming of age point in his life. And it's one of the traits of a shaman. Oh. So he gets taken under the wing of somebody else in the tribe who understands wow starts to train him but that's what a rich like this random yeah himself up in a tree that's such a rich culture you know that yeah. i i've often wished that there people in our culture would see things like mental illness as shamanic it's not something to fear 
and it's not something to drug a person out of, but perhaps if we had a different culture, not, not like ours, it would be more like would be known to be more special and then someone would take the person under their wing. Yeah, I think um, I read a book about consciousness and there was a whole article talking about exactly that, saying that Western culture lost its context for people with, you know, this, I guess you could call it a, you know, alternate way of perceiving or, um, yes, trying to remember what the other term is for this, where, well, I mean, they're not neurotypical. So we don't have right. a place for them in our society. And we've kind of canceled them, you know, yeah, out kind of, of our mainstream society. And where lock is them up. Yeah, but and medicate cultures that have the tradition yes. recognize that this is something special. Yes. And then it's a gift. And it doesn't have to be maladaptive, where we right. thrown it into this whole other category and because of that, those people end up having a very difficult time. Yes. And not simply because they're judged that way, but there's really no context for what's going on with them, even, right. we don't know even how to deal with it. It's like so right. strange to us. Yes. Yes. Our culture is so uh, disconnected with nature and with, uh, what did you say? You just said, well, atypical, atypical yes. thinking. I think that this culture wants to medicate, you know, and um, a different culture would be more adept at dealing with people who are atypical thinkers. Yeah, I mean, and you get shades of that in the stories about people like Joan of Arc, you know, because okay. she, you know, to an extent they had a context for her because, you know, they referred to her as a saint now. Right. But, you know, initially people were like, this is blasphemy. You can't be right. seeing this, you know, but she was having visions and speaking directly to God. Wow. Yeah, that was, yeah it's a good audience to have. <laughs> if, if she hadn't been a woman, things might have been very different for her. Yes. And oh, yes. She would not have been burnt at the stake. She would have been right. you know, automatically, right. you know, declared a hero because of what she did on the battlefield but yes you know because she was a woman i also would, wonder they wouldn't have necessarily sainted a man who had the same proclivity to fight oh no i think they would have i think they would okay. have been more likely to saint a man really um, okay yeah and most most of the saints in the catholic saint pantheon are all men who either had visions or martyred themselves or did something okay okay you know, to prove their you know connection to god yes you know it's usually through some type of trial and hardship in a sense you know she was martyred because of her beliefs yes you know, but by the people who ran the church <laughs> oh <laughs> them <laughs> oppressive you know yes it wasn't like a romans killing her it was Yes. The hierarchy of the church at the yes. time that decided to declare her a witch and burn her at the stake. Oh my gosh. Yes. But the tree sitting thing, I just wanted to go back to that because yes. the trees, um, 
that type of symbol of being up in the tree yes about shamanic cultures like the whole pole thing is turns up in other cultures that are referred to as shamanic as being like sort of like the world tree or the center tree that's you know how the shaman traverses between you know the underworld and the upper world and can act as a psychopomp and go between yes. the heavens where the gods live and the hells where whatever wow. forces are down there live yes so interesting it's interesting to have a rebbe you know i know i know that just i mean strikes me as mel brooks thing right there yes totally jokes with you know some rabbi with the whole with the payout payout yes yeah mel brooks is is some hasidic guy up in the tree going oi yeah oi (laughs) i need some chicken soup what are you doing here (laughs) right really so interesting well, Brendan, I feel like you were telling me a dream that was repetitive that you shared in Dr. Larson's dream group. Did did you finish that? Or I think you just introduced Yeah, it. I mean, there, was, there wasn't a lot more in detail that I can remember, but there was, not only was there this whole thing about the true fairy cross, but there was also- Oh, yes, yes, yes. Something about true silver. Um, okay. Which I guess the idea of silver- you know, has some layered meanings for me. Um, yes. You know, Tolkien's mythology has mithril, which is yes. a silver alloy that is like stronger <sighs> than steel. Is um, that the the um elves? The elves, remember they had uh, yeah, the swords made by, it. yes. The dwarves mine it and okay. the elves use the material to make these incredibly yes you know powerful weapons and i think that that was the type of sword i was given in wow. mithril sword um or something like that yes um, and there's another part of that um in there's a book called fantasties by an author um, named george mcdonald who was writing in the 19th century he was actually a uh protestant priests but he wrote these like wild fantastical novels um Hmm. which are very dreamlike and there's an excerpt in that and the whole dream was about fairyland and he talks about how fairy the world of fairy is interwoven in our world and runs through our physical world like veins of silver through rock oh wow yeah and just the symbolism of that just like was very layered and i you know i know i've tried to re-enter that dream a few times yes because i don't think i ever got to start actually going on and completing the quest okay so it feels like it's undone to me it's like, undone it feels that way to me as well yeah so well that will be fascinating to see if at some point in the dream world, you revisit that yeah, scenario. Yeah, would be, tonight would be yeah. a great night. It's yes, it would. <laughs> there's a um, lunar, sorry, solar eclipse actually happening right now. In uh, down under? No, in well, I don't know if it's visible from the eastern hemisphere, but okay. astrologically, 
Um, this is the solar eclipse. Well, this is the eclipse time of year. Two weeks ago, we had a lunar eclipse. Wow. Partially where from the Eastern hemisphere, the moon had a shadow going across it. Wow. Now we are, here we are 14 days later. Yes. It's new moon mm -hmm. and the moon's on the opposite side. So it's oh, wow. actually occluding the sun. Yes. Um, from the perspective of the earth. And yes, very powerful like symbolically it's really so interesting that when there is a lunar eclipse there also will be a solar eclipse in proximity so that's fascinating days, it's like exactly 14 days because wow you get the full moon and then 14 days later New everything moon. has moved oh and, yes yeah and you go wow. from full moon to a new moon solar yes. has always happened on new moon Okay. Oh, that's interesting. <clears throat> yeah. And yeah. New moons are always a time for, you know, it's symbolic of a beginning. Okay. Um, yes. But it's also the darkest point of the lunar cycle. Yes. So it's yes. both the beginning and the end. In Judaism, uh, the women often have a woman circle at the new moon. And um, I don't know what the connection is with the religion. But I've always known that women are gathering at the new moon. That's so, interesting. Yeah, I'll try to find out more about that. Yeah, I know that there's been a number of writers who have uh, indicated that there was a stronger feminine component to early forms of Judaism that somehow, you know, was largely historically erased, but there's traces yes. of it in some of yes. the traditions. And that would probably be one that they would look at to indicate that wow. the whole idea of the Shekinah you know, yes. being a very important part of that. Yes. And, um, you know, Jewish holidays always follow the moons. Yeah. It's a, it's a lunar calendar. Yes. Um, Robert Graves, you know, makes a big deal about that one. Oh yeah. He talks about like, I mean, and his work is, a lot of people debunk it as being, oh, it's not, you know, anthropologically or archaeologically sound and blah, blah, blah. Huh. But he wrote, poetic. what did he write? He wrote The White Goddess. The White Goddess, yes. Yeah, that's the, the work that people attack the most. But he wrote tons on Greek mythology. Yes. He wrote I, Claudius, which, you know, some of you might know from PBS. Okay. Now, years ago, but about the Emperor Claudius, who was the, uh, one, I don't even know what, he wasn't exactly disabled, but he had a speech impediment. Okay. So he was considered foolish. By they say that about Moses, that Moses also had a speech impediment. That's interesting. And that's why when God gives the, um, 10 commandments but this reminds this is mel brooks right i have 15 whoops one drops 10 10 commandments <laughs> yeah that's a great gag <laughs> so um but the story goes and this would be like midrash about the the hebrew way of of looking at it that he has a stutter and that's why and he says how can i share with the people how can i talk to the people and then God gives him permission to um, do his healing wonders with his brother, Aaron. 
So, because Aaron doesn't have a stutter. So that's very interesting. So what happens to the brother? Aaron is the high priest. And um, he's a high priest. Okay. And uh, I don't think anything happens to him. You know, he's, he's a communicator. <laughs> but one of his sons, oh, what are the names? Zephyr and Ephraim, something like that. One of his sons does die because he did something against what he was told to do. I think he enters the Holy of Holies and um, only the high priest is supposed to do that. Uh, so, so he breaks the law. And he basically. dies. Yes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I like what happens in the end of that uh, uh, Indiana Jones film. Oh, when the melting faces. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> the melting Nazi faces. <laughs> yeah, it's a great film. I give my Indiana Jones hat, but I'm not wearing it at present, obviously. But um, I bought it at Kenco maybe 20 somewhat years ago. And it's still, I love it. I feel like everyone should have an indie hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Time to put on the indie hat. I know. Uh, I have I have exploring to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it's so interesting, Brendan. And I am sorry to cut it shorter, but I've been asked by listeners to keep them a little under an hour, or like a half okay. hour, preferably. So, but I love talking to you, Brendan. You you're very wise. You're a wise one. You're a wise guy. You're a wise man, wise guy. <laughs> you're also that. <laughs> but I really enjoy talking with you about many, many things. Always fun to have, you know, people to talk to about this stuff with. Yes. Yeah, so let's do this again quite, quite soon. You know, think, yeah. of, think of themes that you might want to explore. I got to start writing down some yes. of my themes. Yes, you do. <laughs> there's been a, a reoccurring theme lately of encountering people from my past so. okay interesting yeah yeah well please if you have any more of those dreams please do write yeah. it down i'd love to explore that with you yeah that'd be great cool all right brendan once again Take thank care. you thank you and to our listeners we say sweet dreams, holomod metukim. Ciao. Ciao. Oh, golly.